Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy. Uh, hello, um, I'm Despina Karakatsani, and I'm professor of pedagogy at the University of Peloponnese. I'm teaching history of pedagogical theories, intercultural education, and educational and social policies of childhood in the 20th century. We are here with my colleague, uh, Vasiliki Theodorou, to discuss our joint study, which uh, was published in 2019 by the Central European University Press under the title, Strengthening Young Bodies, Building the Nation, a Social History of Child Health and Welfare in Greece, 1890-1940. We would like to extend our warmest thanks to Patrick Ryan for the invitation to this podcast of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, but most importantly, because his invitation confirms that the Society for the History of Children and, Children and Youth is a truly inclusive scientific forum. And now my colleague will introduce herself. The floor is yours, Vaso. Please. Hi, my name is Vasiliki Theodorou. I am professor of modern Greek history at Democritus University of Thrace. My academic interests lie in the fields of the social history of Greece, the history of childhood, and the social history of health during the 19th and the 20th centuries. Desmond and me have been working together for many years on a joint project on the history of child welfare in Greece. Our project covers the period spanning from late 19th century until mid 20th century. Our research led to the publication of the book, Strengthening Young Bodies, Building the Nation. And we can say that the book is situated at the crossroads of the childhood, the social history of medicine, and the history of education. Before presenting the book, we would like to share with you how this project came about and what was our approach to the subject. Uh, Despin and I had come on research interests, but we come from different disciplinary backgrounds. Her background is in the history of education, while mine is in social history. Uh, when we met, Desmond was doing research on the history of pedagogical theories, while my research focused mainly on the history of public health during the 19th century. Oh, indeed. Uh, we met in 2002, when we were both studying, yet from uh, different perspectives, the open-air schools and the summer camps in Greece. I was interested in the pedagogical methods applied to various alternative forms of education, like the open-air schools. Vaso, on the other hand, was doing research on the various attempts undertaken for the prevention and treatment of the pre-tubercular children. These attempts included sanatoria, preventoria, and various other outdoor institutions intended 
for the welfare and destruction of the sick children. Uh, we exchanged uh, ideas and worked uh, together on the history of medical and educational institutions for children. We also looked into the ways these attempts were influenced by other European paradigms. Um, during the first years of our collaboration, we have to uh, underline that we presented the results of our research in international conferences on open-air schools, which gave us the chance to explore the social history of health with regard to childhood. And while working on this topic, we realized that although studies on the history of childhood and youth had started in Greece since the 1980s, uh, there was a lacuna in Greek bibliography uh, concerning the emergence and development of institutions for the supervision of child health and welfare in a period so crucial for the medicalization of childhood. Initially, our research was influenced by a number of studies on the medicalization of childhood published during the 1990s. Take, for example, Child Welfare in England or In the Name of the Child, edited by Roger Cooter. These studies highlighted the ways in which the change in adults' attitude toward the body of the child were part of wider socioeconomic and cultural changes. We were primarily interested in applying these analytical tools in order to gain insights into the Greek case. Despite the common element different national medicalization attempts shared, we knew that the circumstances under which each attempt took place were greatly influenced by the political, social, economic, and cultural condition of each country. Thus, our goal was to discover how these particular circumstances, how the specific national and social context played an important role in the solutions adopted in Greece at the beginning of the 20th century. Given that this was untouched, uh, uncharted territory, our goal was twofold. On the one hand, we wanted to record the attempts made in the span of 50 years by state institutions and charity societies to medicalize childhood in conjunction with political and social changes in Greece during this period. On the other hand, we set out to interpret these attempts in the context of wider, mainly European schools of thoughts. These schools of thoughts influenced the Greek physicians and policymakers. Uh, we were interested in examining how the attempt to medicalize childhood was, sign was signified in contemporary medical and political discourse and how it changed the way working class families perceived childhood. Um, what was, for example, the significance that the normal stages of child development were invested with? How were the concepts of sickly versus healthy child, of normality versus abnormality were developed? Finally, what was the pediatrician's contribution to the formulation of eugenic theories during the intercourt periods? Yes, uh, I would add that some of our initial questions were uh, how were the services for the supervision of children's health on a mass scale organized at the turn of the century? What was the political conjuncture, the doctors and medical circles that triggered of state interest? How did medical thought and practice contribute to the standardization of children's bodily and mental development indices? How were the normal and abnormal child defined? 
Finally, how did medical discourse attempt to change the cultural attitude of families towards the body and medical authority? These were some of our initial questions. Later on, we included uh, also the institutions for the protection of motherhood. The book is the result of research that lasted many years since it was the first time such a topic was to be approached. Our study it in private archives, as well as on literary, cinematic, and other sources. The bulk of archival material was not classified, even when it came from services and ministries and were part of archives. Um, the archive of uh, the PICPA, the Patriot Patriotic Foundation for Child Health and Welfare, which was the main regulator of child health in Greece, is a case in point. Also, the private archives of those who played an important role in their own health policies were revealing. It comes as no surprise that the politicians' and doctors' role is dominant in these attempts, while it is by far more difficult to find sources which give voice to mothers and female volunteers. So, um, drawing on uh, medical and educational journals about the issue of child welfare in the late 19th century, uh, we realized that uh, during this period, serious concerns had been raised about, uh, about the youth's degeneration and the nation's future in Greece, as well as in other countries as well. These concerns, one would argue, took the dimensions of a moral panic Doctors were alarmed, not so much by childhood diseases, but mainly by contagious diseases like tuberculosis, malaria, and trachoma, which had high incidence among school children. Doctors characterized them as childhood plague since they thought it was children that contributed to their spread. Their accounts and the medical statistical data they cited provide us with a picture of the child as being in danger and as dangerous. This child, they felt obliged, obliged to protect, notwithstanding the fact that uh, this same child endangered society as it was a potential career of disease that could put public health at serious risk. A second source of concern was the unsanitary condition of the school buildings. Another one was the mental exhaustion of school children, the mental overpressure due to heavy school curricula, which accounted for the youth decline. In their discourse, medical experts and educators underlined that schools were mainly unsanitary and dangerous places, thus constructing the concept of the dangerous childhood. They urged the government to take seriously this national threat and introduce institutions in order to contain the spread of infectious diseases. But there was yet another reason for doing so, to achieve national regeneration. In other words, to prepare a robust Greek youth, able to defend the country against its enemies. The relation between national defeat and children's welfare was underlined in other national contexts as well. In the case of Greece, doctors linked children's health with a national issue at a time when public opinion was extremely sensitive to such matters, as Greece was defeated in the greco turkish War of uh, 1897. During the 19th and the and early 20th centuries, romantic nationalism and the great idea were the dominant ideology in Greece. The 
country could often find itself in war in service of the great idea, namely the idea of the country's territorial expansion. One way to construct a viable future as a nation was to invest in children welfare services, not only due to national prestige, but in order to continue to be considered as one of the world's civilized nations. Yes, I could add that in medical terms, compared with other European or even Balkan states, Greece appeared to lag behind its neighboring countries, mainly Bulgaria, which were considered to be inferior, inferior as they lacked the glorious past of Greece. Thus, uh, state indifference to child health supervision was a national disgrace. Stereotypes common during the 19th century, when nationalism was at its height, were reproduced in the medical discourse. We can't be certain whether medical professionals intentionally underlined the national delay in a country which uh, presented its glorious past as its comparative advantage, so as to increase their prestige and lead the way in planning national health policies. Without doubt, they put pressure on the government and in the early 20th century, the Liberal Party, which uh, identified itself with political modernization, undertook the task of setting up institutions for the supervision and improvement of children's health. These were the concerns, concerns raised at the beginning of the period under study, and they determined the policies implemented in the early 20th century. The political developments that followed until the World War II influenced in many years the institutions and views on mother and child welfare. So our goal was to grasp the larger movement in this uncharted territory and determine the turning points. The book is divided in three parts, which mirror the three long periods in the history of children's and mother's welfare. The first period covers roughly the years from 1890 to uh, 1920. During this period, the discussion about childhood problems opened up when the first child welfare institutions were introduced as part of the modernization advocated by the Venezuela's liberal government. Um, we have to say that it was a government that was identified with the bourgeois ideology and brought about significant reform in multiple fields. At the same time, Venezuela's government attempted to deal with the crucial social problems of the lower classes. So um, in this context, we were interested in shedding light on the ways child welfare was perceived in the political discourse regarding uh, also modernization and also in studying how policies on child welfare was underwent with educational reform and public health policies. In the 1910s, the Liberal government led the foundations for a school hygiene service, which aimed to monitor child health. And this was implemented with measurements, record keeping, vaccination, in order to build sanitary school buildings to produce morbidity statistics for school children on a national scale and spread the health propaganda to families by means of special brochures. The effort aimed to locate the areas with high rates of morbidity, 
monitor the spread of infectious diseases among school children, improve child welfare indices, child welfare indices, and instruct lower class families to follow the dictates of medical authority. Besides, during the same period, we witnessed the introduction of the first welfare institutions for children, which initially operated under the auspices of women's charities. These evolved later into semi-state and eventually into state institutions. We have to say here that Greece is a country with a long-standing tradition in philanthropy, and it comes as no surprise that mother and child welfare was initially taken up by voluntary organizations whose members were mainly upper to lower middle-class women, uh, medical professionals, and state officials. Now, uh, the second period uh, from the book spans from 1922 to 1936. Two main trends marked this period. First, the influx of refugees from Asia Minor, which was a retrograde step compared to the first period exactly because of the problems their settlement caused, and second, the internationalization and professionalization of child welfare. Admittedly, during the interwar period, states uh, start to vigorously take on the mission of child welfare prote protection, since the cost in human lives World War I inflicted on the population of European countries led to the realization of the value, the life of a future soldier held for his country's defense. This is why governments turned to the experts at international organizations. This is also the period when a sociological approach to the economic and social problems was attempted. Uh, this approach uh, also intensified during the interwar periods, period because of the economic crisis and political turbulence. Um, in this context, so institutions of social medicine hygiene for the lower classes were established. Some of the institutions designed by public health and welfare experts were aimed at children's health and mother's protection. The idea that the child's health is invaluable uh, started gaining currency in 1924 and as becomes evident with the Geneva Declaration and with the establishment of special committees in the League of Nations. A new era seems to rise after 1920, uh, when uh, international organizations and committees staffed, staffed with leading experts start to advise governments on how to organize child health and uh, also welfare services, since children had to be protected from hunger, exploitation and diseases. So this is a period when uh, new problems arise, but uh, we also see new approaches to these problems. In general, uh, the, the interwar period is a lively, I would say, laboratory of various quests for tackling social ills, where different trends and influences coexist, ranging from liberal social, socialist to authoritarian ones. Despite the difficulties Greece faced during the 1920s and 1930s, it benefited from the communication with international organizations. So Greek governments were called to face the crisis in the public health sector due to the arrival of the refugees. Politicians realized that were they to tackle these problems, 
they should turn to the League of Nations Health Committee for assistance. They did so in 1929, so as to reform the public health system. It was an ambitious plan with some of other things, including the establishment health and welfare services for families. As a result, we see the gradual establishment of services for the welfare, but also for the control of children's health according to international standards. We also see that in the 1920s, governments included in their social policy agenda, the issue of child welfare as the main prerequisite for a successful social policy. The Liberal Party again played a leading role in these reforms. It uh, introduced modern institutions for children, for example, summer camp for weak children, opener schools, school meals and schools for special groups of students, such as for the blind, deaf, the pretubercular children, etc. Changes illustrate not only the need for modernization, but also the need for providing for lower class families. During the same period, we see attempts to standardize children's mental health. Also, the PICPA, the Foundation for the Protection of Motherhood and Childhood, was reorganized and acquired the status of a semi-state organization. In general, we can say that mothers and children took center stage in the political discourse and participated in the general plan for the country's modernization. Um, it's important to speak also about eugenics. Uh, eugenics was also a factor that contributed to the re reinforcement of social policies on motherhood and childhood through a different lens. Uh, the development of eugenic movement internationally and the way it was underwent with pedology did not leave the Greek pediatricians and politicians who has, had studied abroad indifferent. Their request to set up uh, more services for expectant uh, mothers and children, uh, combined with the mortality and morbidity statistics, resonated with the public. Thus, during this period, discourse about social policies on families was steeped in concerns over high infant mortality and also uh, the unsanitary conditions of childbirth. So pediatricians holding key ministerial posts, posts uh, supported the need to take measures in order to improve the quality of the biological capital, to secure also better conditions of childbirth and rearing, and also to establish family registers wherein uh, hereditary diseases would be entered. One of these pediatricians was uh, Apostolos Doxiades, uh, president of the Patriotic Foundation for the Protection of Children and Under Secretary of Health in Venezuela's governments. The state assumed a central role in these private issues, aiming to create a robust generation of citizens. Uh, therefore, even uh, though pediatricians expressed reservations about the adoption of uh, negative eugenic measures, such as uh, sterilization and the prenuptial health certificate, they in fact uh, stressed the need to establish consultation centers for would-be couples and also provide motives and services for large families, impose taxes on the unmarried or the childless, and generally cultivate a kind of, um, we say, biological awareness in would-be parents. The third period is marked by Ioannis Metaxas' dictatorship and the turn to authoritarianism. 
this political change affected both health policies and child welfare. The regime, which was imposed in August 1936 and lasted until World War II, used this policy on childhood so as to increase its influence and legalize the violent, the violent wage its power. Inspired by other fascist regimes, the dictator Ioannis Metaxas placed the social welfare services for mothers and children at the very center of his policies. Fascist Italy was a murder for him. So influences from respective policies on mothers and children implemented in fascist Italy can be detected on the works of this period. Yes, um, and uh, I would add that even though Metaxas denounced the liberals' uh, policies as insufficient and indifferent uh, toward children, towards children, he essentially continued the same policies and, in fact, reinforced several institutions like children camps, uh, school lunches, and institutions for special categories of uh, sick children, like those with tuberculosis or trachoma. The children were trained to express gratitude and admiration for the dictator in return for his health and welfare provisions. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, we have to stress that Metaxas placed more emphasis on the protection of uh, mothers, the establishment of midwifery schools, the establishment of birth clinics and consultation centers for women, ante and postpartum. Special attention was paid also to training mothers in order to uproot superstitions, especially in the countryside. Side. Uh, so during this period, uh, the first eugenic measures are institu institutionalized with the adoption of the prenuptial health uh, certificate for couples, which lived in areas with high syphilis and trachoma incidents. Um, we have to underline that in the regime's political discourse, childhood and youth were invested with special connotations connected with the cultural and the historic mission of the Greek nation. If territorial expansion was necessary for imperialist, uh, imperialist Nazi and fascist aspirations, for the Greek case, the gods were more cultural-oriented. Inspired by the romantic national ideals of the 19th century regarding the great idea, Metaxas dictatorship set as its primary, primary goal the propagation of the third Hellenic civilization in the Mediterranean. Uh, the regime as a carrier of this ideology was obliged to strengthen the institutions which would provide future citizens and soldiers with healthy and robust bodies in order to live up to their historic role. Uh, I would add that the second reason why childhood was so important for the new state was that uh, the dictator aspired to gain a foothold in the masses which he certainly lacked. Through the almost obligatory participation of children from the age of eight in the national youth organization, and through the provision of social services, such as uh, school lunches and summer camps, uh, Metaxas expected to attract supporters so as to secure the longevity, longevity of his regime. Through his lens, health and social welfare services doubled as propaganda mechanism aimed at mothers and children, both. Therefore, the special attention so given to the welfare of children and mothers in the years leading up to World War II is linked with political and 
ideological uh, expediency. In other words, it is linked with the legitimization of the regime and the historic mission of the Greek nation. It is sure that it was not the first time childhood was called to play a prominent role in a political ideology, but uh, it was the first time it was so manifest. It is clear that health policies were not only about health and welfare, but serve political and ideological aims as well. Regardless of the emphasis laid on the improvement in the health of mothers and children during the interwar period, the measures taken were not sufficient. Funding was not either sufficient. This is why health indices will improve and contagious diseases will be effectively treated only in the post-war years. So coming now to the contribution of the study, after actually explaining the structure of the book, what uh, we would say, uh, I can start with uh, underlining the most important things related to the contribution of the study. Uh, so uh, although it is difficult for us to estimate the contribution of our study, <laughs> as you can understand, uh, we could argue that in the case of Greece, this study opened a whole new field of interest and research. Uh, actually on the social welfare of childhood and motherhood, and also school hygiene, eugenics, in relation to childhood welfare, child mental health, biopolitics, and also normality. It helped us, first of all, gain insights into the problems and solutions adopted in Greece during the first half of the 20th century. It also pointed out that the issue of mother and child welfare was related uh, with the establishment of state health and welfare organizations, and also with uh, educational reforms, uh, health bureaucracy, um, the role of medical professionals and politicians, along with the influence of the international organizations. Um, on the other hand, it also shed light on the European origin of the solutions, the interactions also, the turning points, with regard to changes uh, in the ideological, scientific, and political fields, and also the changes that started to emerge with the ascendance of fascist regimes. Uh, this research, our research, uh, I would say, that looked into the ways the eugenic discourse affected uh, the concerns about child welfare, welfare which uh, would uh, secure the procreation of healthy offspring, children, and explored how the issue of the quality of the biological capital was raised in Greece. So, this now concluding, we have tried to detect our research points to the continuities and the discontinuities of the efforts undertaken either in relation to school hygiene or in relation to the protection of children and mothers by voluntary societies. Although many issues in the history of children's health remain unexplored, we mainly attempted to provide the context in which these efforts took place. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Shusai Podcasts. You can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online. SH cy.org